to the preaching and teaching ministry of Marion Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. Um, tonight we are continuing our series on answering tough questions. And I had mentioned last week that I was going to try to deal with two related questions tonight. And those two questions were, are polygamy and slavery approved or acceptable to God? Because there's some basic principles that are very similar. But I started doing my studying this last week and it's like, we can't do that. There's no way we're going to get both of those done in one night. So I split them up. All right. Uh, so tonight, we're going to talk about, is polygamy acceptable to God? And then next week, the plan is to talk about, is slavery acceptable to God? And the idea being, well, why would you even ask that? And, and the the reason why we'd ask that is that both polygamy and slavery are mentioned in the Bible, in the lives of God's people, and there's actually even some instructions about both. And in the New Testament, even Paul writes about that. If you're a slave, this is how you should relate to your master. If you're a master, this is how you should relate to your slaves. And it's like, does that mean God approved and sanctioned slavery? Um, so that's next week. But this week, it's one that perhaps isn't as emotional because it doesn't impact us near as much. Um, but it's a very important question. Is polygamy acceptable to God? Now, I want to get some definitions out of the way. What is polygamy? How would you define polygamy? Being married to more than one woman. And that's the way we most often look at it. That's the way it's most often used. But polygamy can actually be the opposite. You just don't see that, where you can have a woman married to more than one man. All right? But polygamy means the practice of being married to more than one person at a time. Okay? We're not talking about somebody who's married to somebody and then their spouse died, they married again, and then they divorced them and then married, you know, but at one time being married to more than one person. There's actually separate words for if it's a man married to several women or if it's a woman married to several men, but polygamy covers the whole thing. All right? So if that's polygamy, what's the definition of monogamy? And please know it's not the same thing as monotony. At least not for most people. What is monogamy? Being married to one person at a time, right? The practice of being married to one person at a time. So I know that probably most all of us knew what those were, but I didn't want to go through the Bible study. Somebody sitting there saying, I don't really understand exactly what we're talking about here. Okay. Um, another word that comes up, though, is concubine. You don't hear much about that today, but in the Bible it talks about people being concubines. Does, can anybody, does anybody know what a concubine is? What'd you say, Lisa? A mistress? Uh, I wouldn't categorize it exactly like that because a mistress kind of has the connotation as somebody on the side that other people don't know about or that really shouldn't be there. Uh, right, I understand, but really shouldn't be there. But in their culture, a concubine was somebody that they had a place in society. It wasn't like this is extra and it's forbidden, it's taboo, whatever. So... Yeah, Hagar was a concubine. Yeah. What were you going to say, Veronica? It could be a helper in the household. Mm-hmm. On your note sheet, I have it this way. It's a woman acquired by a man as a secondary wife. Now, when we say secondary, it's not a second wife, because that would be just plain polygamy. But secondary in the sense of at a different level. In other words, 
Not a full-fledged wife. Okay? It's not somebody who has the same status. It's somebody who has a lower status. It could be a slave. It could be a helper. Um, you know, whatever. And you might say, well, why would they do that? What, what purpose did they have? And as I was doing some research on it, um, sometimes it was for the exact reason why Sarah said that Abraham should have a child by Hagar, who was a servant. She became a concubine because Sarah couldn't have kids. So it was to provide a male heir. That was one reason to have a concubine. I don't think that was true for Solomon. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Okay, I don't think he had that much trouble having kids. Um, but anyway, another reason was to provide more children in general, because in their culture, the more children you had, the more blessed you were, the more workers you had to carry on the family business, to take care of the farm, the herds, all that kind of stuff, and to grow your wealth. All right. And then a very simple reason, some men had concubines just to satisfy their desires. Like, I want somebody else, but I don't want to elevate them to wife status. Because wives had status, and there were certain legal responsibilities you had toward your wife or wives that you wouldn't have toward a concubine. Okay, So that gives us some definitions to understand the foundation that we are working from. Now, this question, is polygamy acceptable to God? Why might this answer, or why, why, why might answering this question be important in our culture today? Because... In our culture, at least in the United States, in most cultures of the world, polygamy is not an issue. I mean, I do know in our culture you've got the Mormons who still practice, some practice that, but in general. So why are we even bothering with it? What, what, what could be the significance of really understanding what the Bible says and means about polygamy in our culture today? Can you think of any reasons why that would be important? I can think of one major one in my mind, but population? Okay, so why would answering that question, what does, what does population have to do with why the, answering that question is important? Okay, well, I mean, polygamy, if it became a habit, would cause more children, perhaps, to be born. Okay, but why is answering this question so important? Okay, well, polygamy usually doesn't relate at all to homosexuality or lesbianism with men and men and women and women. It has to do with men with several wives or a woman with several husbands, although that's not as obvious. So let me just go ahead and tell you so we can jump right into it. The reason why I think this is crucial and why it's important for us to understand is because our culture is and has been going through a rapid change of trying to redefine what is acceptable as far as sexual relationships and gender. And in fact, I told you two weeks from tonight, we're going to have a really good video clip on the biblical foundation and, and teachings on sexuality and gender, okay? And for people that would try to justify different types of relationships, whether you're talking about homosexuality or lesbianism or polygamy, even though that's not as popular now, I could picture it becoming very, very popular. Uh, to be honest with you, it is very, very popular. They just leave out the marriage part. You have as many partners as you want sexually and stuff. And it would be very easy for people to point to the Bible and say, well, see, even the Bible is not quite as strict as people make it out to be. People say the Bible says it should be just one man with one woman. But yeah, but they had polygamy, you know, and they had this. So I think it's important that we understand what the Bible really does teach or show about polygamy so that if someone were to come to us and say, 
Well, look at the Bible. There were a lot. I mean, look at Abraham. He had more than one wife. Look at David. Look at Solomon. All these heroes of the Bible have more than one wife. So what's the big deal about our sexuality today? That's why I think it's important that we understand what God's true standard for marriage is. Yes, Vita. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's part of what we're going to talk about tonight. But, you know, it's really interesting. I think God allowed this to happen just to be an illustration tonight. Um, I had just my annual dermatologist appointment on Monday, okay? And so I just go once a year because i got some skin cancer and family history. So anyway, I go, and then the night before they sent me an email, said, please fill this out because if you fill this out now online, you won't have to do it tomorrow in the office. It was just some basic questions like who's your um, contact person and who do you mind us sharing information with? And one of the questions, like, I wish I, I should have taken a picture of it or written it down, but it basically was asking what kind of relationship I had. I put down Jan, you know, my wife, and it said, are you, or what kind of relationship do you have? Are you married, divorced, um, partner? And it also said polygamist. And I thought, what? I mean, that's not even legal technically in the United States, but that was one of the options I could have chosen on a doctor's form of what kind of relationship I'm in. So even though it's not quite legal, it's still something that's out there that people can choose. Okay, so it's coming into our culture. But as I said, several, and I'm going to use this word tonight just to kind of give us a several heroes of the Bible, okay, had more than one wife. Abraham's already been mentioned. You know, I mentioned David and Solomon, Jacob, all right? So is polygamy acceptable to God. So we're going to look at a couple of different principles that we see in God's word or from God's word that'll help us to get a good foundation on this. The first one is this. The Bible nowhere presents polygamy or concubinage, 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 however that's pronounced, having concubines, okay? As part of God's design or as morally approved. There are stories of people in the Bible having more than one wife, having concubines it's pictured as that was part of their life but is there's nowhere where that is presented is that this is what god wants you to do or that it was morally approved by god uh all the people that you see that had more than one wife or had concubines in the bible um they're never commanded to do so by god and they're never commended by god for the fact that they did so okay There's a principle here, and this is true in a lot of different ways when we talk about how do you interpret and apply biblical principles, okay? And on the note sheet, I have it this way. Principle is description is not prescription. Description is not prescription. You might say, well, what does that mean? Basically, what that means is just because something is described, even if it's described as being normal, does not mean that it is prescribed, that it is recommended. When you got a prescription, you go to the, to the pharmacy because this is what it's recommended that you take, that you do, okay? So a description is not the same thing as a prescription. There's lots of things that we see described in the Bible that are not meant to tell us what to do. In fact, some of them, many of them are there to tell us what not to do, okay? So just because there are people described as having more than one wife or concubines doesn't mean that that makes it okay. It's just a description of the way things were. All right? Now, let me ask you a question. Can you think of any examples 
of biblical heroes who did things that were not approved by God, but it's described, but it wasn't. Can you think of any examples? How about like everybody? (laughs) Give me some examples of some real godly men or even women that it's described that they did certain things, but they weren't approved by God, even though they were godly men and women. David, what did he do? What didn't he do, right? (laughs) He had too many wives. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had her husband murdered, you know, but he was a godly man, right? And I'm not mocking. He was. He had a heart after God. He was human. He failed. But because he was a godly man, does that mean that all the things that's described about him were okay? No. God's judgment came on him and his family because of his sins. What are some other examples of people that even though they were godly men or godly women, but they did not do what they were supposed to do? Eli, the priest Eli. Okay, who else? What? Judah with Tamar. Yeah. Chris. Samson. Yeah. God used Samson tremendously, but he was one of the most immoral people um, in that time of Israel's history. Yeah. Um, You know, I think of Peter, great man of God, denied Jesus three times. Great description of it, but that doesn't mean that's what we should do. So that's just some very obvious examples of how just because something is described in Scripture about even the most godly people, they're still people, still fallen, still make mistakes, still give in to sin, have to repent, consequences to it, that doesn't make it right. And the same thing is true for polygamy. Okay. The second one is this. The Bible presents monogamy as God's original design for a normal marriage relationship. Monogamy, again, being one man, being married to one woman, all right? Now, I know that word is used in our culture a little bit differently. It's used of even people that aren't married. It's used of a man and a man and a woman. As long as you're only committed to and having sexual relationships with one other person, then that's monogamy. But biblically, monogamy is one man, one woman who are married, all right? Um, And that's what the Bible presents as God's original design a normal marriage relationship. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 when God created Adam and Eve. And at the very, very beginning, it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And not that God needed any support from anybody, but Jesus reiterated the same thing. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 6, the Pharisees came to Jesus And they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered them, have you not read that he created them from the beginning, made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So they're talking about divorce, and uh, the topic isn't divorce tonight, so we're not going to get into proper reasons for or not for divorce. But in his answer, Jesus just says, hey, listen, you know, the way God originally planned for it, one man, one woman together for life. That's God's most perfect plan, all right? In Deuteronomy 17, 17, we're only going to read that one verse, but in the verses around that, there are some instructions that Moses is giving to God's people as part of the law. And he says, someday you're going to want a king. And when you have a king, here are some things that your kings should do and shouldn't do. All right. 
And it's interesting because the things that um, he said the king shouldn't do, Solomon did all of them. But anyway, um, it said the king shouldn't amass great fortunes, which most of the kings did that. Um, it said that they shouldn't go back to Egypt and get horses. Solomon did that. One thing that was really cool, though, he said every king, when he becomes king, should sit down with God's law, the copy of God's law, and make a copy for himself. He has to write it himself. I thought that was really cool because basically they had to take the time to read it, study it, copy it, so it would be more in their mind. Now, I don't know how many kings did that because it's never mentioned again. But one of the other things that was said about the kings in verse 17 of Deuteronomy 17 says, And he, the king, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. Okay? So in that case, uh, God said through Moses of kings, now he didn't say he can only have one, so it's not strict monogamy, but he says, don't let him have a bunch of wives. The end result is they're going to lead him astray. Okay? All right? And then from the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, it talks about qualifications for um, in the English Standard Version, it says overseer. It's the same word for elder, leaders of the spiritual leaders of the church. It says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Now, there's been a lot of debate through the years. What exactly does that mean? Does that mean they can't be divorced or do they have to be married? But no matter what it means or doesn't mean, it definitely means he's not allowed to have more than one wife at a time. Okay. Now, does that mean that that's just true for overseers or elders? No. And the thing we have to understand, we have these qualifications for overseers or elders, but why are they qualifications for overseers or elders? Does that mean that only leaders in the church have to toe the line and be those kind of people? If you look at the qualifications, the answer is no. The qualifications there are things that God expects of all his believers. The fact that they're listed as qualifications for elders, they're basically saying, listen, they need to be a good Christian. They need to have grown in maturity and in their morality to the degree that they can be a good leader. All right. In other words, this is something that God wants. Of, these are things that God wants of all of us, men and women. But we're all in process. But to be at that level of leader, you have to have made some progress in that process. OK, so there we see um, the principle of monogamy. One more, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. We're not going to read that whole passage, but here we have Paul's instructions to the church for husbands and wives. You know, it talks about wives submitting to their husband's leadership and working together with like a, and husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And when you read that whole passage through, when it talks about husbands and wives as groups, it says husbands and wives. But whenever it gets down to specific, it says a husband should love his wife. Okay. Not his husband should love his wives. It always mentions them in the single and vice versa. All right. But the other thing is that that passage also talks about the fact that when God established marriage, it was not only his normal plan, his perfect plan for the normal marriage relationship, but he did it deliberately as an illustration of Christ's relationship with his bride, which is the church. And Jesus only has one bride. Okay. So all of these things are things that we see from Scripture that illustrate that monogamy is God's original design for a normal marriage relationship. Okay. Third principle here is that some things that God allowed were not part of his perfect plan. 
There are things that God allowed or did not make an issue at the time, but that doesn't mean that he approved of it, okay, um, as we said earlier, um, but he allowed it for a purpose. Uh, I have another principle there, and that is very, it's very similar to the other one I gave you. Allowance is not the same thing as approval. Allowance is not the same thing as approval. God allowed some of his people, some of his leaders, some of his men to have um, uh, multiple wives. And there's no record in scripture that he made a big deal out of it to them. All right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he approved of it. This principle is illustrated in a passage I I read a minute ago, but to read the rest of it. Remember, I read... Um, in Matthew 19, when the Pharisees came to Jesus, said, is it lawful to, vor- to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus said, you know, from the beginning, it's supposed to be one man, one woman, blah, 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 blah. If you take that passage on to verses 7 to 8, um, the Pharisee says, then they said to him, well, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? If that was God's plan, then why did God, and it's interesting to say command. God didn't command, okay, <laughs> them to do that. And Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. In other words, he's saying, God's plan was never that people get divorced, but he knows people. And because of the hardness of hearts and the problems that can come and all that kind of stuff, God allowed there to be circumstances where divorce was allowed, but it wasn't God's original plan. And polygamy is pretty much the same thing. I, I was really interesting. I'd never heard this before, but it makes some sense. Um, it's not in Scripture as a description or uh, a reason or anything. But uh, so, uh, one Bible scholar that I was reading said that one of the reasons that maybe, again, this is just an opinion, that God allowed it back then without making as big, make a big deal of it, you know, by giving one of the, you know, making eleventh commandment, thou shalt not have more than one wife. You know, he didn't do that. One of the reasons is the fact that in their society, because of the way their culture was, it was almost impossible for an unmarried woman to provide for herself because women did not have the same, we're not given, we're not allowed the same opportunities for education and for productivity and training to make a living and that kind of stuff. So if they didn't, if they were not still in their father's home or if they were not married, or if they did not have a brother who was willing to take care of them, they would either starve or have to beg or be forced into prostitution. Um, and so, therefore, or slavery. And so one uh, article that I read said that maybe that's one of the reasons is that there were women that if they did not have the opportunity to become a second wife or a concubine, they had been forced into prostitution. And that would have been a whole lot worse than being in the other situation. Now, again, that's not something the Bible says is why God allowed it, but certainly is an interesting thing to think about. Okay? Um, Number four, the instances of polygamy in the Bible show how destructive it is to people in their relationships. The instances of polygamy in the Bible show how destructive it is to people in their relationships. And some would say that that's the exact reason why God gives so much detail or records so much or has recorded in his word these people um, that had these relationships. That these stories are included not to inspire people like, hey, I should get another wife, but to warn them this is not a good thing. Okay? Um, The first one I have down is trivia question is Lamech. 
in Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 to 19 and 23 to 24. A trivia question, who's Lamech? He's a descendant of Cain, not too far off from Cain. Cain is the one who killed his brother Abel. Cain was the very first boy child. Yeah, firstborn son of Adam and Eve. And so he is a descendant. What is Lamech known for? Does anybody know? He was, what'd you say? No, he's not the musician. He's the first polygamist recorded in Scripture. Anything else you know about him? He what? Yes, he is characterized as a very wild, wicked, violent, and bloodthirsty man. Let me read the passage. Um, Genesis 4, 17 to 19. It says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city... Um, he called the name of the city after his name of his son Enoch. Enoch to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehujel, and Mehujel fathered Methushel, Methushel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. So he's the first polygamist recorded in Scripture. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. And then it talks about some other descendants, one of them being the ones you were talking about, Lisa. One of their descendants was the one who was a musician. Yeah. Verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Basically a very arrogant, prideful attitude of like, you know what, somebody hurt me, I just killed him. And I'm just going to do what I want. And... Um, and if Cain had, you know, if there was a revenge for someone to take Cain's life, then there's going to be a sevenfold revenge for me. And so this guy is characterized as is a really bad guy, villain before the flood, and it's in association with the fact that he was a polygamist. Not that that caused it, but it's very interesting that that's the way it's presented in Scripture. Okay? The second one we have here is Abraham. Abraham. Okay, that's Genesis 16. Um, go there, verses 1 to 4. And that's a story that most of us are probably familiar with. Um, Vita referred to that earlier. Um, Abraham was married to Sarah, and God had promised Abraham that they would have a son, and through that son would become you know, the lineage of the one God was going to provide to solve all the world's problems, basically is what it's going to turn out to be. But that they're going to have a great family that would turn into a nation, and Sarah got older, and Abraham got older, and they both became older than was normally possible for them to have children. And so Sarah came up with a great plan. Uh, Genesis 16, verse 1. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abraham, or Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abraham's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. When she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And that son became Ishmael. All right? So, was that a good decision? No. Was that what God wanted? See what God what happened on Saturday. Yeah, that's right. You know that was not God's plan. Okay, um, it was a great example of something we all struggle with, and that is waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises, wanting to help God along. And the history of 
the relationship between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac, the promised son, is illustrative of that is not a good thing. Okay? Um, again, it's really interesting when I was doing some studying on this. It says that it seems to indicate, because when, when Moses wrote down, Moses is the author of Genesis, he's recording these stories. There are certain themes that are carried throughout. And um, I, I want to preface this with a disclaimer. This is not a sexist remark, and this is not a downer on women or wives. Okay? Say, what in the world is he going to say? Well, just keep that in mind. All right. Back in the Garden of Eden, when Eve listened to the serpent, gave into the temptation and took of the fruit, offered it to Adam, Adam took it. And one of the things that was said very specifically, and Adam listened to his wife and gave into the temptation. And the, the, the source I was studying here said, you've got almost the exact same wording here, that Abram listened to his wife and gave in and did something he shouldn't have done. Now, that is not being down on wives or being down on women. And it's not an excuse for us men to not listen to our wives. If you're like me, men, you've got a wife that's got a lot of wisdom and a lot of common sense, and you need to pay attention to her, okay? Doesn't mean you always have to agree with her. When you don't, you got to work it out, okay? But, he says, there seems to be kind of a theme there. But the problems that have come from that all through history, but even way back in God's plan, of course, God can overcome any problem, but it can cause a lot of uh, consequences that could be avoided. But here it's because of the polygamy that was involved. Oh, yeah, that would be a very interesting study to trace that whole thing. But um, that's a great example. The third one, let us see there, is Jacob. And we're not going to read Genesis 29 to 50. Uh, those, all those chapters, the story of Jacob. So how many wives did Jacob have? Two. Is that the only women he had? No, he had two more besides the two wives because he had two concubines. Yeah. And... That what made it even worse is his two wives were sisters. I can't even imagine. Okay, if you're not familiar with this story, Jacob was running from his brother Esau because he had ripped him off, and Esau was mad. He went to another country where he had relatives, and he met a relative, a young lady that he fell in love with, and he contracted with her father to marry her. He worked seven years for his future father-in-law to be able to marry Rachel. The night of the wedding, I don't know if he got drunk or what, but he ended up marrying her sister, Leah. Uh, his father-in-law slipped her in there, and Jacob didn't realize till the next morning. I don't understand that. But anyway, he wakes up, and he's married to the woman's sister that he wanted to marry, and he approaches his father-in-law, and he says, how could you do this? He says, well, in our culture, we got to marry off the older one before the younger one. He says, but you can have the younger one, too. Just work another seven years. And so he did. So he's got these two sisters. And the jealousy and the rivalry that was there, and in this whole process, God kept the one that Jacob loved most, Rachel, from having any children. But Leah's popping out babies like boom, 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 boom. And so Rachel says, I can't have this. So Rachel takes her servant and says, Jacob, here you go. Just like Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham, you take my servant and have children by her, and they'll be like, in their culture, they would be considered kind of like her children. And so she starts having children, and Leah stops having children. And Leah says, uh-uh, she's going to get ahead of me. So, Jacob, you take my servant, okay? Bilhah and Zilpah are their names. And so they're popping out babies, then eventually Rachel was able to have two children. And so they ended up with 12 children. 
So what were some of the problems that came from that? Besides the jealousy and envy that we talked about, Chris. <laughs> yeah, maybe, you know, it says here that Bilhah and Zilpah were the servants. Maybe it was Bilhah Hatfield and Zilpah McCoy. That was where the Hatfields and McCoy started. I don't know. You know, but there was not only the envy and the rivalry between the two sisters, but between their children that ended up causing one of them to sell his brother, Joseph, into slavery. I mean, there is so much turmoil and problems in that family, so much sorrow and misery, and it all came down because Jacob had more than one wife. All right? The, the fourth one, David. You can find the story of his various wives in 1 Samuel 25, verses 42 to 43, and 2 Samuel 3, verses 2 to 5. You know, you read the story of David. He raises up from a shepherd boy to Saul's assistant, and he plays music to calm Saul's spirit. Um, then he becomes a warrior. He defeats Goliath. He becomes a general. He has great victory in war. Saul gets jealous. And you read David's story, and he's on the run for like 20 years from Saul because Saul keeps trying to kill him. Finally, Saul dies, and David becomes king. But all along the way, he keeps picking up more and more wives. You know, he started out by Saul offered him a, one of his daughters for a wife, and David says, I'm not worthy. And then so Saul offers him another daughter for a wife, and he decides to go ahead and marry her. And then he marries somebody else, and he marries somebody else. And it's just kind of like he, he's adding them to his collection. All right? Um, but the Bible records a lot of problems that came out of that. What are, some, what are some of the problems that came out of the fact that David had so many different wives? What did you say, Carlton? Yeah, again, a lot of the rival. We don't have any stories about the rivalry between the wives, although there probably was some, you know, rivalry and envy, but between the children. Yeah, you had his oldest son rapes his half-sister, and then her brother, Absalom, murders him because he raped her. And then that same son, Absalom, basically holds a coup, carries out a coup against his father to take over the kingdom, and tries to kill David. Um, and so there's so much turmoil, so much brokenness, trouble um, in David's life and family that came about as a result of the polygamy. Too. There's some other factors that are in there too. His, his sin with Bathsheba um, had a big part to play in that too. All right. And then letter E, you have Solomon. First uh, Kings 11, 1 to 8 talks about his wives. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. What was the big problem with Solomon and his wives? What? Idols, yeah. You know, one of the reasons Solomon had so many was making alliances with other countries. Under Solomon's leadership, Israel grew and grew and grew. and well, Under David's leadership, it grew and grew and grew. But then Solomon cemented that by having treaties with all these different nations. And one of the ways that you would do that is you would intermarry in the families because, you know... If you got this king over here and you got this king over here and this king's married to your daughter, you're not going to go attack his kingdom because your daughter is one of the king's wives, you know. But it says very specifically that, you know, Solomon started out so well, but as he got these wives, they came from other cultures where they worshipped other gods and he wanted to keep them happy. So he would build a temple for their god in Jerusalem or on the hills surrounding that. And that was one of the things that instituted a lot of the idol worship that became so prevalent after that was that all these wives that Solomon had, they had their own idols. And it says that Solomon himself was 
drawn into worshiping other gods besides um, Yahweh. And, um, and that is directly related to having several wives. There's another story I didn't put him down as an example, but, you know, Samuel's mother, Hannah, she couldn't have any children. And um, there's such strife in the home because she was one of two wives. The other wife had plenty of children, and they're causing all kinds of problems and stuff. And um, that's not as major of one, so I didn't put it down as an example. All right. So whenever you read about polygamy in the Bible, at least the examples, it's always a negative story. You don't say you don't see anything described as like, well, their lives were so much better because there was more than one woman in the home, you know, um, or anything like that. It's always described as a negative thing. Um, but there are a couple of verses that almost makes it sound like it's OK. And so to wrap it up, I want to deal with the two main ones. There's not a lot of them, but these are the two main ones. Um, what about the passages that seem to endorse polygamy? There are a couple of passages where it almost seems like God is giving permission um, Deuteronomy chapter 21, there are some instructions for a man and his wives when he has two wives and they happen to be sisters. Not, no, that, no, that, that's not. In fact, because of what happened with Jacob, I'm getting two things confused. I don't have this in the note sheet, but because of, I think because of what happened with Rachel and Leah and Jacob, there is in God's law, when God gave his law later, he says, if you're going to have more than one wife, do not marry sisters. Okay. Um, that is in the law. But in Deuteronomy chapter 21, in verses 15 to 17, it says, if a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, sounds just like Rachel and Leah, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the first fruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. So by law, in their, na- in their culture, if you had more than one son, the firstborn son would get twice as much as any of the other sons. If you had two sons, the firstborn son got two-thirds, the other one got one-third. If it, more than that, you just divide it up appropriately. The firstborn son, he says, listen, if you've got a guy, you got two, two wives, two sons, and he loves the one wife more than the other, and the one he loves the most has a son, but he's not the firstborn son. He can't make him the firstborn. He can't treat him like the firstborn just because he loves his mama better. All right? You got to keep the law. Now, when you read that, it almost sounds like, well, God's giving approval. How would you respond if somebody says, well, see right there, it shows that God's given approval to, to polygamy. How would you respond to that particular passage? Anybody have a thought? You're like, no, tell me. <laughs> yes, Carissa. Mm-hmm. So basically, God made a plan for a bad situation. It wasn't a situation that he would prefer, but it's there. So how do you handle it? That's what I put on your note sheet there. Basically, this passage provides guidance for leaders when dealing with bad situations. And there's actual proof of that in this chapter. So what this is called, this is called case law. Okay. What case law means is if you've got a situation like this, this is what you do. All right. Versus regular straight out moral law, which says do this or don't do this. This says, well, if you've got this situation, this is what you do. If you've got that situation, this is what you do. In this case, it says if a man has two wives. It doesn't say since a man has two wives or a man should have two wives or a man can have two wives. It's just if there's a man that has two wives and this issue comes up, 
this is how you handle it. Now, I said this proof in this chapter. If you go further down in the chapter, you know, because he's basically God is giving a couple different cases here. The very next case, verse 18, it says, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father and the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, they will not listen to him, then they shall do this, 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 and this. Okay. Does that mean it's okay for a son to disobey and mistreat his parents and treat them with a lack of respect? Does that mean that God approves of that? No. It just says that's a bad situation. But if it happens, here's how you handle it. You go in a little bit further. Um, verse 22. If a man has committed the crime punishable by death and he's put to death you and you hang him on a tree and then it gives us instructions, again, it's... It, it, is it okay for a man to commit a crime that would normally be punished by death? No. I mean, that's contradiction in terms, right? That's a paradox. No, it isn't all right. It just says, but if that happens, that's not what God wants to happen. So this chapter is full of cases of things that God may not necessarily want to have happen, but if it does, this is how you handle it. So far from being uh, an approval of polygamy, it's just saying that, okay, if this happens, if this situation is here, this is how you handle it. But I'm not saying I give my approval to it. Yeah, go ahead, Linda. Yeah, I'm so glad that God tells us how to handle sin or problems in our life rather than just saying, if you got sin and problems in your life, I'm just going to write you off. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, God's forgiveness is available. Yeah. The second scripture that sounds like it might come across as that God might be approving of it is 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 7 to 8. The background to this is that David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. He's had her husband murdered to try to cover it up. And he's gone for a year thinking he's getting away with it. But God reveals to a prophet named Nathan um, what's happened. And he sends Nathan to uh, issue uh, condemnation for the act and the fact that there's going to be consequences to David. Okay, And um, Nathan goes, and he's God's representative, but if he approaches David, and David's in a bad mood, he can have him put to death. <laughs> but Nathan's a good man of God. He's going to say what God tells him to say, but uh, whether God gave him the insight to do it this way or whether he came up with this himself, he said, well, I'll just tell him a story that makes a point and then kind of tell him. And so he tells his story about this this poor man that had this one little ewe lamb and he loved it like a pet and all that kind of stuff. And he had this rich man that had all these flocks of, of sheep and stuff. And the rich man had somebody come and they wanted to have dinner. And rather than sacrifice one of his many sheep, he took this one little ewe lamb, that this, the only one this man had, and fixed it for dinner. And David says, that should never... And he knew that being a shepherd, David would really resonate with this because he, he was close to his sheep and all that. He said, that should never... He should be punished. He should be put to death. And Nathan says, you are that man. You know, the idea, you got all these wives, all these women, and you took somebody else's, you know. And so Second uh, Samuel 12, verses 7 to 8, it says, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add even more. He says, listen, I put you where you're at. I delivered you from Saul. You know, And the way this is worded, it says, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. It makes it sound like that David took Saul's wives for himself and that it was God's doing, okay? But that's not what it's trying to communicate. 
is basically trying to convey the idea, this is on your note sheet, that the, the idea being conveyed is that Saul's royal house came under David's authority. David took over the kingdom from Saul. There's no place in scripture that says that David took Saul's wives for his own, that he slept with them or anything like that. This is just a way of saying, in their cultural way of saying it, that you took over Saul's kingdom and everything he had became yours. Okay? And so this is not a support for polygamy. All right. All right. So anyway, I did a lot of talking tonight. Uh, You did some really good comments too. But um, as I said, I think this was an important issue to deal with because, again, of our culture's push to try to legitimize so many different types of relationships, sexual relationships outside of God's plan. And I want to end with, you know, what we started out with. God's plan was revealed from the very beginning, Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Monogamy is God's original plan for marriage relationships. It's a picture of Christ and his church. And depictions of polygamy reveal the ugliness, the heartbreak, and the devastation that comes when you go outside those boundaries. Okay? And so one of the main things I wanted to draw from this tonight is that if you're married, and I know some of you are not, and that's fine, we need to cherish the relationships that we have. And we need to fight for them. And I don't mean fight with them, <laughs> our spouses. But, you know, the enemy will do everything he can to separate us from our spouses. And we need to fight for what God has given us. God's plan is best. And we need to work hard on our marriages. Now, let me just make one other little disclaimer before we close because it's a minute past time to close. I do know that divorce is a fact of life for various reasons. And as we briefly mentioned tonight, even Jesus said, because of the stuff that happens between husband and wife, there are certain circumstances, not every circumstance. It's not near supposed to be as easy as it is today in our culture according to God's plan. But there are circumstances where God does permit divorce. And God can build a second marriage and make it a wonderful thing. My point is is that if you're married, however you got there, you're together. Fight for your marriage and realize how precious it is. Okay, Because that's what God planned is that a man and a woman could be together, build a life together. That would be phenomenally wonderful, and it should illustrate the love of Christ for his church. All right, let's, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the time that we've had together tonight to look at this a little bit out-of-the-ordinary topic, but something I think we're going to see in our culture more and more and more as people try to stretch the boundaries of what's proper and what's not and accepted and what's not. Father, I just pray that uh, you would help us, Lord God, to strengthen all of our relationships, but especially tonight, I think of marriage, for those of us that are, that you would help us to treasure that relationship and do everything we can to protect it and to fight for it when the enemy tries to cause problems. And Father, we just thank you and praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaks.com. 
kg.org.